Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Abide in Liberty. I'm glad you're here. Last week, we left off talking about the importance of a limited central government and how with the implementation of the 17th Amendment, a lot of authority that used to be with the states has shifted to Washington, D.C. And I left off with the question, well, what's so bad about that? What's the big deal with more power being centralized? And in the the principles that I'm going to talk about today, that actually kind of leads in perfectly to some of the next principles that Cleon Skousen in his book, The 5,000-Year Leap, talks about. So I'll go through those and outline for you why centralized power is something that deserves to be feared. The founding fathers were very, very suspicious of centralized government, and they set up the Constitution to limit the central government in as many ways as it was possible to do without completely hamstringing the federal government from doing anything that only it can do and which it can do best. But their desire to limit federal government, aside from being inspired by a healthy fear based on their own experiences of oppression with strong central governments, that desire to limit that government wasn't just based on fear alone. There were good, sound principles and good historical evidence to support, aside from their own history, to support their trepidation of giving the central government too much power. So the first principle I'm going to jump into is the principle of majority rule, but minority rights. So in the Articles of Confederation, we've talked about these before, this is the quote-unquote constitution that governed the Continental Congress during the American Revolution prior To the American Revolution, there were 13 independent colonies with each their own separate form of government, and there was no unifying force. Well, the Articles of Confederation were the first attempt by the early colonies to band together and have some kind of a central um, coordinating force to help get them through the American Revolution to manage that war. But one of the main limiting factors of the Articles of Confederation was that it required unanimity. Now, for those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, unanimity is something we're fairly familiar with. Uh, The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency don't move forward on a decision unless there is unanimous consensus. So that, that doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal. Well, yeah, unanimity. We shouldn't move forward until everybody agrees. However, in the history of governments, of civil societies, unanimity is not something that is practical. It's a nice thought and is ideal, but those, those countries and those governments that have tried it have just been met with all kinds of problems in real-life application. In particular, waiting on unanimity can be disastrous in a time of emergency like what we had during the American Revolution. If 
there's a major problem that needs to be solved now, waiting and trying to get a complete 100% consensus on what to do about it can be costly. In the meantime, while you're trying to get everyone onto your side, people could be dying or starving or worse. John Locke, who was one of the philosophers that the founding fathers relied on heavily in framing the Constitution, said, And thus every man, by consenting with others to make one body politic under one government, puts himself under an obligation to everyone of that society to submit to the determination of the majority and to be concluded or bound by it. So in other words, when we choose to live in a society, and we all, because we have we're still here. If we're in the United States, we have agreed to live under this government. So what that means is we are agreeing to bind ourselves by the will of the majority, even if what the majority wants doesn't agree with what I want. And this principle, aside from being just an, uh, a practical way to run government, is key to how in this country we have had peaceful transitions of power over and over and over again. If you look at world history, when power passes from one person to another, even in many cases when it passes from father to son, from a king to a prince, many times those transitions are fraught with turbulence. Um, In fact, the very first time that we had a transition of power from George Washington to John Adams, the founding fathers waited with held breath to see what would happen. When George Washington was elected, he was almost universally loved and adored and respected. So he was an easy first pick for the first president of the United States. By the time he had served two terms and it was John Adams' turn, he was not the the universally adored figure that George Washington was. So many of the founders wondered, what are the people who don't like John Adams, who didn't vote for him, what are they going to do when he takes over? And many of them expected revolts and violence because based on the history of the world that they knew to that point, the vast majority of the time when there's a transition of power, that's what happens. And even more so, John Adams was a part of the same political party as George Washington. So maybe there wasn't as much trepidation with that one. But after John Adams, when Thomas Jefferson came in, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, this wasn't just a, uh, a shift from one person to another. It was, a, it was a shift from one political party to another. And again, everyone was nervous. What are people going to do? What are the Federalists going to do now that we have this anti-federalist and Thomas Jefferson taking over? Are they going to revolt? Are they going to rebel? Are we going to have another revolution? And it didn't happen. So as this continued time after time, it became a little bit more common to expect that when we pass the baton from one leader to another in the United States of America, at least, we're going to do that peacefully. And so that has become in this country the rule rather than the exception. Whereas in all of prior human history, Peaceful transitions of power was not the rule. It was the exception. Now, we do have some exceptions of that in America, the most notable one being when Abraham Lincoln was elected. The minority of the states who didn't like Abraham Lincoln's philosophies with regards to slavery 
broke away, declared their independence, and tried to secede from the nation. They weren't willing to follow this principle and allow the will of the majority to be what we all agreed to. They violated that principle. And I know I talked about the Civil War before, but this is yet another principle that they were in violation of that put them on the wrong side of God and put them on the wrong side of history. John Locke also said, For if the consent of the majority shall not in reason be received as the act of the whole, nothing but the consent of every individual can make anything to be the act of the whole, which considering the variety of opinions and contrariety of interests which unavoidably happen in all collections of man, it is next to impossible ever to be had. So this is a little wordy, but he's basically saying that if the majority isn't good enough to be received as if it were the act of the whole, then nothing short of the agreement of every single individual works. Nothing less than that works. So you either have to have majority or unanimity. There really isn't a great in-between place. And Alexander Hamilton in Federalist paper number 22 explained this a little bit more why that is. He said, to give a minority a negative upon the majority is in its tendencies to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the lesser number. The necessity of unanimity in public bodies or something that approaches towards it has been founded upon a supposition that it would contribute to security. But its real operation is to substitute the pleasure, caprice, or artifices of an insignificant, turbulent, or corrupt junto to the regular deliberations and decisions of a respectable majority. So he's saying here that in the past, people have considered requiring unanimity to contribute to security, right? We're not going to make any movement forward if we can't get everybody to agree. And in principle, he's agreeing that that sounds great. The reason why we've been doing that is because we think that's going to grant us greater security, but it doesn't in practice because what ends up happening, and they saw this in practice during the Revolutionary War, you end up with a small majority that can stop and bring everything to a grinding halt. So Rhode Island was a common culprit of this during the American Revolution. Rhode Island was the smallest state. It felt its impotence a little bit, and it would flex its muscle when it had a chance. So if there was something it didn't like, it would just stall everybody up. You could have 12 of the 13 colonies all wanting to do the same thing, but because Rhode Island held out, they were stuck. There was nothing that they could do. So by trying to bring about unanimity, you end up with a situation where the minority can call all the shots. And in a world where we have to choose either between the majority, the majority's will being what flies, or everybody being ruled by a minority or by a smaller group of people, the lesser of those two evils is the rule by the majority. So nothing short of majority rule, if you try to make it unanimous, then you are automatically accepting rule by the minority is what that means. Now, you may hear that and say, well, if if the minority's will isn't what gets to take precedence, then the rights of minorities must surely be trampled. And in a lot of cases, you would be right. That's one of the big reasons why 
many of the founding fathers saw the implementation of a Bill of Rights as absolutely essential and why they saw the importance of a written constitution as vital. Because in throughout history, any time democracy had been put in practice, inevitably, the majority would band together and oppress the minority, oppress the few. And we've talked about this before. If you can get 51% of the people to agree that 49% of the people should give all their property to us, then they can enact that law. So a couple of things that the founding fathers put in place allow for the majority to take precedence, which is just practical for good government, while also protecting the rights of the minority. And the Constitution is that first line of defense. There is a set of rules that even if the majority comes together and wants to do something different, they cannot. They cannot come together and do something that goes against the Constitution. So that's one way that those rights are protected. And the second way is really kind of part and parcel with the first one, and that is the inclusion of a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Because there are certain rights that are listed, those rights cannot be violated even if you have a majority that wants to violate them. And this is one of the main reasons why in order to, in order to alter the Constitution, you have to have the agreement of 75% of the states. They didn't make the altering of the Constitution subject to the will of a simple bare majority of 51%. They made it subject to three-fourths of all people. So in order to change those rules, in order to change those rights, if there were a majority that wanted to come and oppress the minority, they would have to get three-fourths of the population of the United States, or three-fourths of the states, sorry, not the population, but three-fourths of the states to agree with them. And then they could alter the Constitution in a way that eliminates some of those guardrails that are meant to keep the minority safe. But in practice, that is very difficult to do, especially where, as John Locke puts it, that there are a variety of opinions and contrarietive interests which unavoidably happen in all collections of men. So interests are so varied and divided and different that to get that many of the states to agree to a change really is a lot harder than you would think it is. Really is a lot harder. The next principle is where we're really going to answer the question of what's so wrong with more centralized power, with power and authority flowing to uh, Washington, D.C. than what the founders had originally intended. So as a general principle and as a general rule, power tends to want to centralize. Power tends to have a gravitational pull towards other power. And... Um, Central governments tend to want to amass more and more uh, power. The founding fathers, I mentioned this before, looked to the peoples of the Anglo-Saxons. These are the ancient uh, Englishmen who became kind of their model for strong local self-government. And that, you know, their population was small enough that, um, and the Anglo-Saxons were kind of broken down into tribes. And each tribe held their own tribal meetings where each person had a say and had a vote. 
in what was going to happen in their tribe. And the founding fathers really liked this idea of people being able to control things that are closest to them. Now, in the United States of America, we don't participate in government the same way that the Anglo-Saxons did. The Anglo-Saxons were more of a democracy where these small groups, these small tribes would come together and they would all individually cast a vote. And we elect representatives to go and do that work on our behalf. So that's the difference between a republic and a democracy. In a democracy, you pass the laws and you vote directly on the laws. In a republic, we... um, elect our representatives, and then they go and discuss and pass laws. And in many states, like in Arizona, there are processes where um, you can refer a law to the ballot where people can go vote on it directly. So that's kind of a remnant of this democratic way of doing things. But for the most part, most laws that are passed are done through our representatives. In England, back in those ancient days, local municipalities handled their own problems They replaced their own members when a vacancy came in a particular uh, public office. And in fact, it was that foundation of self-government and of being able to control things on a local level that was in place even during the time of the American Revolution. This is why the early colonists had their own local governments. They elected their own leaders. And that was one of the things that in the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers and Thomas Jefferson pointed out was kind of a grievance that they had against King George III. As Englishmen, they had the right to elect and appoint their own local leaders. And that tradition went dated back to the Anglo-Saxons. And the crown had been depriving them of that by appointing his own leaders for them. Thomas Jefferson said, the way to have good and safe government is not to trust it all to one, but to divide it among the many, distributing to everyone exactly the functions he is competent to perform best. Let the national government be entrusted with the defense of the nation and its foreign and federal relations, the state governments with the civil rights, laws, police, and administration of what concerns the state generally, the counties with the local concerns of the counties, and each township direct the interests within itself. What has destroyed liberty and rights of man in every government which has ever existed under the sun? The generalizing and concentrating all cares and powers into one body. So Thomas Jefferson's looking throughout history and seeing these great examples of experiments in democracy, in republicanism. And what does he see as the main thing that led to its their downfall? It was bringing too much authority into the central government. We see this with Rome. For a long time, Rome was a republic and was very much reliant on local governance. And it wasn't too long after it had consolidated into an empire with just an enormous amount of authority residing in Rome and with the the emperor that they began to lose touch, that they began to lose their grip and eventually collapsed under the weight of this bloated central government. James Madison said in Federalist Paper number 45, the powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous 
and indefinite. So this goes back and, and is strongly related with the principle that we talked about last week of the importance of limiting the authority and powers of a federal government. And one of the main reasons why they wanted to do that was to preserve most of the authority, most of the decision-making at the local level. Who knows best what the people in Tucson or in Salt Lake or in St. George, Utah, or in Washington, D.C., or in Seattle, Washington. Who knows best? What's best for the people in those areas? It's the people in those areas and those who they elect. Who knows best what is, what's going to make um, Kansas the most successful? It's the people who live in Kansas, who know the climate, who know the soil, who know what it's capable of. This is the whole idea is put, give people the authority to act in those areas that they have the greatest expertise. It is simply plain hubris to think that any one person or any small group of people located hundreds or thousands of miles away can possibly know what's best for every single person, every single climate, every single culture, every single belief system. And anybody who thinks that a centralized body is capable of all of that need only look to the experiments in communism that have failed so miserably. Now you might say, well, there's still, yeah, the Iron Curtain fell. Yeah, you know, the USSR fell and there have been bloody ends to communism, but China's still kicking. Yeah. And how well has that government done at preserving the life, liberty, and the ability of its people to pursue happiness? Thomas Jefferson went on to say, let the general government, and back then they ref- they used the word general government to refer to the federal government. The It's the government that is over the country generally. Let the general government be reduced to foreign concerns only, and our general government may be reduced to a very simple organization and a very inexpensive one, a few plain duties to be performed by a few servants. Um, when you look at the, the, the responsibilities that the federal government actually has in the Constitution, it becomes very obvious that much of what it's dabbling in, much of what it's doing today is outside the scope of the Constitution. None, we've talked about this before, none of the welfare programs are within scope. Um, the Department of Education, education is not a part of anything that the federal government has any business dealing in, at least according to the Constitution. So it seems weird to us to hear you know, a former president talk about the federal government being a simple organization and an inexpensive organization, especially with the massive amounts of debt that our federal government is incurring today. But this is how they viewed it back then. In fact, in the Constitution itself, it requires Congress to meet once per year. And during the debates in the Constitutional Convention, many were worried about requiring the federal government to meet so frequently because they thought that because they had limited the federal government so severely that 
they wouldn't have enough to do if they met once per year. That was too often to meet once a year for a short amount of time for one short session. They'd just be bored and we'd be requiring these people to travel hundreds of miles to come for this meeting only to realize, hey, we got nothing to do. You guys can head on back now. They were genuinely worried about that. And now we have a Congress that is in session year-round, is not simple or inexpensive. And the reason for that is this shift, this power has shifted from the state level to the federal level. And it is not making our education system any more efficient. It's not making our economy any more efficient. The rapid, insanely rapid growth and prosperity that we're experiencing has slowed significantly since this shift happened. And it's no it's no great secret why that is. We've got more central bureaucrats trying to make decisions for people that live in situations and in climates that, and in parts of the country that they know nothing about. This is a principle that we desperately, desperately need to regain if we're to preserve our freedoms and if we are to get back to being that shining city on a hill that our founding fathers and that God himself wishes this country to be. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, Keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.